We begin a new series uh, looking at the first three chapters of the Bible, so we're turning to Genesis 1. I'm sure you can find the page number for that one. And tonight, we're not even reading a whole verse, but Genesis 1, 1, A. This is the inspired, inerrant, unfailing word from our maker. In the beginning, God. We have seen in the last half decade or so what can be best described as a moral revolution taking place around us perhaps kicked off in earnest in 2015 with the Supreme Court decision of Burgerfell versus Hodges. Uh, but since then, so many other things have taken place. And revolution does seem to be the best word to describe it. It's a revolution against ethics, against physics, against reality, even against common sense. We live in a day, an age where supposed scholars and academics refuse to answer questions as seemingly Simple as this, what is a woman? Now, if we want to know how we got to this point of insanity, that is a conversation for another time. I would commend to you uh, Dr. Carl Truman's latest book, Strange New World. A couple years ago, I highly recommended uh, his book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Some of you got it and then complained to me that it was too confusing. So I told Carl, and then he wrote an abridged version. Strange New World, um, really, really helpful short book that kind of helps trace the, the thought of Western uh, philosophers that led us to where we are today. Um, so that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about how we got here. But if we want to know how we can live in such a world in, in a way that's effective, that's fruitful, that's faithful, how we can engage with some of the major claims of the day, then we will not get far at all if we don't begin with God. And so we're taking our cue from, from Julie Andrews, really, who taught us back in 1965 to start at the beginning because it's a very good place to start. So that's why for this series, we're beginning at the beginning in Genesis 1. And as you read Genesis 1, as we turn to the beginning, what do we find? We find God. It's good for us also to remember that this is um, foundational for, for how the Bible thinks of itself, if I could put it that way. Or, or it's helpful for us to understand how the Bible is meant to be read and, and, and understood. The Bible is not a self-help book. It's not about tips on how to live a good life. More than anything else, the Bible is Revelation, that is, it exists to reveal God and to prove the reality of God. And you don't need to go far to figure that out. It's in the very first four words in English, four words in Hebrew, only two words. So that means that the scriptures won't let us approach them in any meaningful way without, without presuming and affirming 
the existence of God, that God is real. Late uh, Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says simply that the Bible is about God first of all, and to read it with any other primary interest is to misread it. If you're not reading it to learn about him, you're misreading it. And likewise tonight, I want to prove to you that you cannot function in the world in any sort of meaningful way if you deny the existence of God. We have a lot of problems right now in society. Some of them are new. Some of them are not new at all. But the fundamental issue with all of them is a rejection of the reality of God. A rejection of God. The, wor- the reason that the world seems to be unraveling around us is because the majority of the world has rejected the very one who has made the world in the first place, the one who holds the world together. And so this is where we start. This is where we start with our series, Solid Foundations for a Crumbling Culture. We start with this fact that before all time, God is. This is a good place to start. It's a biblical place to start, but nevertheless, I want us to come to terms with the fact or acknowledge the fact that it's a very difficult place to start. That's the first thing tonight. It's a very difficult place to start, starting with God, and then we'll conclude considering that it's a very important place, though, to start. But it's difficult, and it's difficult for at least two reasons. It's difficult because of the, the limitations of a finite mind that we all have. It's difficult for that reason. But it's also difficult because of the fallenness or the hardness of our fallen hearts. So there's the limitations of a finite mind and the hardness of a fallen heart. First, the limitations of our mind. We don't need to contemplate these words in the beginning, God. We don't need to contemplate them very long until our heads start to hurt. What does that mean? That there was a someone already there at the beginning. That there was someone who pressed the start button on start. How is that possible? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Dietrich Bonhoeffer once lectured on the opening of Genesis. And he said... Wherever the beginning begins, that's where our thinking ends. Wherever the beginning begins, that's where our thinking ends. That's where our thinking stops. How can we think of someone before there was anything? Now, this is, in essence, the famous cosmological argument uh, that was popularized by Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. Really, he was taking it from Aristotle. And it's also called sometimes the argument from causation, Uh, the argument for the existence of God from causation. And it essentially goes like this. Everything in this world that happens is caused by something else. So then the question is, what caused the world? If everything that happens in the world is caused by something, then what caused the world to happen? And the only way to answer that question without kind of getting stuck in an infinite loop of causation is to assert... That something that itself did not have a cause caused everything else. And that something that doesn't have a cause is God. 
Now, that's hard to wrap our minds around, and the Bible affirms that. In his dialogue with Job about right and wrong, about suffering and evil, this is what God says to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Job, of course, does not have such understanding, and so he replies, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Find similar language in Psalm 139. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain it. Rightly understood, though, the limit, this limitation isn't a reason for despair, but actually doxology. That's what Paul does with his limitation of trying to understand who God is in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You see, to know that there is a God who stands outside of time, who stands outside of creation, and therefore that means he's eternal, it means he's self-sufficient, means he doesn't need anything, it means he's not going anywhere, means he's unchangeable. That's all packed into those first, those first four words of Genesis, in the beginning, God. To, to know that there is a God out there like that, that is a good thing, not a bad thing, even if we can't understand it. If I could understand all the ways of God, I have far less reason to submit to him, to obey him, to adore him. Rather, I have much more reason to argue with him, to challenge him, to doubt him. I think of it like this. When I get on an airplane, my expectation and my, my hope is that the person in the cockpit knows a lot more about aviation aeronautics than I do. I don't want the person in the cockpit to have the same level of knowledge and understanding about these things as I do. And in the same way, when I wake up in the morning, when I get out of bed in the morning, I want this complex life that I live in, this complex world that I live in, to be controlled by a God who is so complex himself that I can't explain him fully or understand him fully. That is a good thing. That's what we want But yes, we have limitations. But we should acknowledge that this limitation of our minds is actually not the primary thing that makes the acknowledgement of a transcendent and an an eternal being difficult. That's not really the primary thing. It is the hardness of our fallen hearts that rejects God. And something has changed in recent history that's made this even more of a hurdle. The, the denial of the one true and living God is a, is a problem as old as Eden. There's no doubt about that. But here's what's new. The denial of any God. The denial of any divine power. Uh, the, the, the denial of a, a transcendent being. That is more modern. Consider this. The word atheist was coined in the 1600s. That is not that long ago. That means, it doesn't mean that there were never atheists before then, but it meant it wasn't until the 1600s there, was, there were people out there and somebody said, we need a term for them. What's happened? Where did all the atheists come from? Well, they come with the enlightenment, with industrialization, with the tech-savvy world that we now inhabit. 
You know, it's hard to imagine, but, but hundreds of years ago, nobody really um, dared to not believe in the supernatural. You know, in the ancient world, people were constantly faced with the reality of their own demise. They woke up in the morning not sure that they would survive to nightfall. That's just the way the world worked. They woke up with the reality of death always before them. That meant eternity was always before them. They're always thinking about these things. But we don't operate that, in, that way anymore. Why not? Because we have Tylenol now. Right? Think about it. Then this is what secularists say. This is the claim that they make. They say that the belief, belief in God was a necessity in an ancient world to make sense uh, of of the earth, to make sense of the things around them. There was no other way to explain why the sun rose in the morning or why snow fell in the winter. And so they couldn't deny the supernatural because they didn't have any other explanation for life. But now we have satellites. Now we can predict the weather. Philosopher Charles Taylor has said there have been essentially three epochs in Western history. The first was when it was essentially impossible to not believe in God. That's the first. Then with the Enlightenment, it became possible to not believe in God. And now in the postmodern world that we live in, it's essentially impossible to believe in God. Why? Well, now we have Google. Who needs God when you have Google? I really think that's a a helpful way to think about it. Did you know that Google processes 8.5 billion searches a day that is more than one search for every living person on the planet 8.5 billion and do you know how i found that out i googled it yes of course what would happen if google if if google's server went down for a day what would we do you know it actually happened for five minutes back in 2013 And they found that internet traffic dropped by 40%. What does that mean? That means that for five minutes in 2013, people got on the internet and they found Google didn't work. 40% of internet users just said, okay, well, I'm not even going to get on the internet at all. There's nothing else for me here if Google isn't working. Now, one tech website envisions something much more apocalyptic-like in the event that Google servers uh, went down for an entire day. Not five minutes, but um, an entire day. This is what... That website writes, he says, those of us who don't have a a second choice search engine, I'm guessing that's a lot, would instinctively want to make a Google search for, quote, other search engines, only to realize again that Google is down. The rest of the world would probably find themselves on Bing, and then their servers would crash under the enormous waves of traffic that Google was dealing with every day. The most searched for how-to question worldwide, which is how to tie a tie, would leave men everywhere half-strangling themselves. More seriously, though, stocks would crash. Android users would not be able to make phone calls or text messages. And I just want to say that's their fault for being Android users. 25% of the world would not be able to use email. Think about it, 25%. And we would all be stuck at home or lost, unable to use Google Maps. So think about how the average American would react if you went up to them and said, there is no Google. They would panic. There would be be 
chaos, bedlam in the streets. If you said there is no Google. Now imagine going up to that same individual and saying there is no God. What would their reaction be? They'd probably shrug and carry on with their day. Why? Because they have already been living life under the assumption that there isn't a God anyway. And you don't need a God. You don't need a God in a world with Tylenol, satellites, and Google. And so, for this reason in particular, our society today, at this moment, finds God a difficult place to start. But nevertheless, what we're told in Genesis 1-1, that there is a God. In the beginning, God. It is the most important place to start. It's the second thing, the final thing this evening. It's what we want to show our neighbors. It's what you need to believe tonight. You need to come away believing that this is the most important. This is the most foundational thing. Acknowledging that God is real. That God exists. And acknowledging the existence of God is important for at least two reasons. First, it will give you meaning in life. And second, it will get you ready for death. It will, get you, it will give you meaning in life, and it will get you ready for death. And could there be anything more important than that? Well, how does the existence of God give you meaning in life? First, the existence of God brings significance to my own existence. Think about that. The existence of God brings significance to, to my own existence. It's a lot, a lot harder to justify one's place or purpose in life if they're just an accident. If they're a byproduct of chance molecules that happened to collide billions of years ago. But if in the beginning God is true, if God stands outside of time as the all-powerful, the all-knowing being, then that means another statement is true as well. And that is this, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah 1, 4. I matter. You matter. Because you have been known for eternity by an eternal God. The existence of an eternal creator gives significance to temporal creatures like you and me. British author and uh, once famed atheist, A.N. Wilson, he converted to Christianity later. He acknowledged that if material atheism was to be believed, that would make people nothing more, and this is his quote, than animated pieces of meat. Is that, is that going to get you out of bed in the morning? I'm just an animated piece of meat. Now recall Derek Kidner made the point that since God is at the very beginning of the Bible, to read the Bible with without trying to find him, is to misread it. We could say the same thing about life. Since God is at the very beginning of time and life, as, as we know it, to try to live that life apart from him would be a terrible error. Our catechism is helpful here. What's man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. There are billions of people trying to find significance in their social media posts, in their gender identity, in their sexuality, in their 
careers, in their families. The list goes on. They're desperate for significance. They hunger after significance. They want to matter, and they can't matter in a secular worldview. But you and I, brothers and sisters, Christians here tonight, can go to our our lost neighbor, our lost friends, and say, you matter not because of anything you've done, but because God is real. You're not an accident. He planned the world, and you were part of his plan. That means you matter. He brings meaning to our life because he gives significance to our existence. The existence of God also, secondly, brings meaning to morality. Now, this was proved by uh, aforementioned A.N. Wilson. He was a historian author in the late 1900s, and um, he wrote a book in the 1980s, Against Religion, Why We Should Try to Live Without It. It was all about how you can be good without God, essentially. But years later, he converted to Christianity. And the reason he gave was essentially that he found he was unable to be good without God, and he was convicted by the morality of Christians. And in fact, it was through writing a historical book on Nazi Germany that he was converted to Christianity because this is what he saw. Quote, what kind of, re- referring to Nazi Germany, quote, what kind of a mad world was created by those who think that ethics are a purely human construct? And we see it with fascism. We see it with communism. Worldviews constructed by humans who think they know better than God and what happens in either case, millions upon millions upon millions of people are murdered. Now, I want to be clear though, this isn't to suggest that Christians are more moral than non-Christians. In fact, there are a lot of non-believers, unbelievers out there that are that, that live a, a more moral life than me. Uh, the Bible talks about this, Romans 2.14, that, that people don't have the law, live according to the law. And I bet you know a lot of really good people who aren't Christians. But what it does mean, what I'm trying to suggest, is that the, it's only the Christian who has a reason for being moral, a reason for doing good. The categories of good and evil, right and wrong, they only make sense in a worldview that posits the existence of a God who has impressed those morals upon us. And so the atheist can't give a solid or a compelling reason as to why something is right and why something is wrong. And that's a problem for our culture today because society is trying to say a lot of things right now are good, they're okay, they're right, and they're things that for all of human history, people have said, no, these things are wrong. And what arguments can they give to tell us why we should start doing X instead of doing Y? Why should should we listen to them when they say, no, this is a good thing, even though for all of human history we've recognized it's been an unhelpful or unhealthy or a dangerous thing? What reason can they give? None except just to shout us down. The loudest one wins. And that's why we're so polarized today. That's why we've become so vilified in the public debates Because there isn't actually any substance to the argument if you remove God. Charles Taylor, a philosopher that I mentioned earlier, he noted that the morality of modern people is self-authorizing. That's to say, they give themselves the authority to make decisions. Um, that, you, know, you know, it's the idea of what's your truth is your truth, what's my truth is my truth, and can't we all just get along? Well, clearly not, right? It's not working, is it? 
Tim Keller explains what's happening helpfully. He shares how a recent study proved that younger American adults have held two views on morality in tension, and they're actually in conflict. Most of them are relativists. That means they don't believe there's any moral abiding convictions, moral absolutes. So that's the relativists on the one hand. And yet, they hold personally very strong moral beliefs, moral convictions, and they insist that other people should honor them too. So this leaves modern secular people in the position of insisting that other people's morals are constructed, yet they act towards others as if their own morals are not constructed. So in theory, Keller says we're relativists, but in practice, we're absolutists. When we interact with people we disagree with, we are absolutists. He calls this a schizophrenia. And this schizophrenia is a major source of the increasing polarization we see in our culture. So, friends, it's only a moral code that's outside of us, that's, that's before us in time, that will be here after us, after we're dead and gone. It's only a moral code that's transcendent from us, that can be appealed to universally and make meaningful sense of the morality that is necessary to keep society intact and life worth living. We need God for that. God gives meaning to life. He gives significance to our own existence. He gives meaning to our morality. But I want to say one final thing about this, and that is the existence of God makes sense of our suffering. Now, that might sound odd because oftentimes the, the strongest argument against the existence of God is the reality of suffering. You've heard the argument. Maybe you've made it yourself, and that is this. If God is real, why would he allow this to happen? If there's a good God, then why does he allow bad things to happen in variations of that argument? And this was C.S. Lewis's primary objection to the Christian faith. Listen, I want to quote him at length from Mere Christianity. He says, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and so unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of what straight is. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in violent reaction against it? A man feels wet when he falls into water because man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it didn't happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was actually full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there was no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know that it was dark. Dark would be a word without meaning. And so you see what happens. Lewis tries to disprove God by saying there's injustice. 
And then he says, wait a second. If this world doesn't matter, justice as a category shouldn't matter. And yet it does to me. Where did I get that from? God gave it to me. And he was forced by that reasoning out of his atheism into Christianity. So far from disproving God, the reality of suffering, the reality of injustice, in our insistence that injustice and that suffering, that evil is wrong, proves to us that there is a God who has told us what is good. And this God does more than prove his existence through suffering. He proves his goodness through suffering because we know he does more than just, or, or we know more than just this fact that, that evil is wrong. We know what God promises to do with evil. This is what God says. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And that makes all the difference in life, doesn't it? Makes all the difference. It gives meaning to our lives. It makes sense of our suffering to know there is a God who's told us it's bad. This is bad. You shouldn't like this. But I'm going to fix it. Knowing that God exists will give meaning to life finally and very briefly. It will also get you ready for death. It will get you ready for death. There is profound life-altering theology packed into this phrase, get ready to meet your maker. Because if in the beginning God is true, and we have said it is true, that means that God is eternal. And if he is eternal, that means he's inescapable. You can't get away from him. Why can't you get away from him? Because he was here before you. And he'll be here long after you. You and I, we're time-bound creatures. He stands outside of time. Good luck trying to run away from him. You can't. You will meet him. James Montgomery Boyce says, If he were a mere man, if we didn't like either him or what he was doing, we could ignore him. We know that maybe he'll change his mind. Maybe he'll move away from us. Maybe he'll die. Maybe he'll leave us alone. But God does not change his mind. God does not move away. God will not die. Consequently, we cannot escape him. And if we ignore him now, we must reckon with him in the life to come. If we reject him now, we must eventually face the one we have rejected and come to know his own eternal rejection of us. So, Boyce says, how wonderful it is that we meet him at the beginning. In Genesis 1, verse 1, this gives us a chance to come to terms with him and to receive the help he offers, knowing that we will certainly meet him at the end. And of course, the only way for you to be prepared to meet him is to know him through Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples that to know the Father, or to know him was to know the Father. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, John 14. Verse 9. And this is good news, friends, because it means we have seen the Father when we look on Jesus and we see him smiling towards us. We see him with arms open, ready to embrace us and to welcome us. He's not condemning us for, for ruining his creation or for denying him or for all the sins that we've committed. Jesus is the only one who can make us ready to meet God on good terms. So fear not. 
Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? Friends, he is preparing the end for you. Are you prepared for it? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us, which is all we need for faith and for life. We believe that all of Scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for us for teaching, for reproof, for training up into righteousness. Even the very first four words of the Scriptures. Lord, we know that this is where we need to begin, that you are out there, that you are real, that you exist. We cannot escape that reality. We see so many people trying to. Lord, we thank you, though, that you have made a way for us to meet with you in the next life, not in judgment, but in grace because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that many would turn to him. And if it be your your will, would you use our witness even to do just that, to turn those who have denied you, who reject you, who are wandering from you, to turn them unto you for everlasting life. But Lord, of course, we pray that you would begin with us and begin now. In Jesus' name, amen.